Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode number 19 of Because WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. Thank you ever so much for downloading us, whether that's on iTunes or Podbean or the IWN Network. My name is the Twisted Genius, Dean Ayers, joined as ever by WCW aficionado and sports journalist Liam Happ. Liam, good evening. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Dean. I'm doing really, really great. And do you know why? I have this glorious new piece of technology right here on my skull. I've got a brand new headset, and I've got to give you a, a, a little uh, doff of the cap for this one. This is the headset that you use, that you <coughs> borrow from work any evening we do the podcast. I've gone and got myself one, and so far it's going very, very smoothly. Although I say that, and I'll publish this, and I'll sound like Donald Duck. Better than sounds like Donald Trump. Fair play, fair play. And uh, I'm very excited by our guest tonight. Me too, me too. This this is this is a man who uh, who... Our paths have crossed on numerous occasions, and it is the, to me, it's the British wrestling feud that will not die. Uh, I'm very pleased to introduce, he's a journalist, an author, and a commentator, among many other things. Welcome to Because WCW, Greg Lambert. Good evening, gentlemen. Well, good evening. Long time no speak. I know, I know. When was the last time we saw each other, Dean? It was it was out of nowhere in Bath, was it not? I believe. A there few years was, ago. Yes, there was a time because I saw you at Progress Wrestling when you were releasing your book, and then yeah, also yes, I was I was going to Bath for a, a few days, and I um, Bath, saw on Bath, social media Bath. that you're Bath. It's pronounced Bath. We're, you know, as Northerners pronounce it Bath, <laughs> and uh, and I and I saw that you you and I happened to be in the same town at the same time, and we uh, met up for a nice cup of tea. We did, yes. We're, we can't, we're we, we can't actually be civilized. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it was a brief piece, but um. So for people who don't who aren't familiar with you, Greg, tell how how did you get into the wrestling business in the first place? Well. I got into the wrestling business through listening to the old, incredibly, the old uh, talk wrestling radio show, which you were on, Dean. Back Indeed in, I was, two, yes. Yeah, back back in 2001 on TalkSport, when, when Britain had a nationally aired Saturday night wrestling chat show on the radio. As opposed yeah. to now where it has a nationally aired wrestling show on the telly. Indeed, indeed, yes. So there was like Alex Shane and yourself and Tommy Boyd, I guess, yeah. back then, and Nikita, Nikita. Or Lee or Katerina, as she's now known in Impact. Uh, and I listened in, I was inspired by it, and I was inspired by the revival show that FWA and Tommy Boyd were going to put on at the Crystal Palace Indoor Arena on February the 9th, 2002, starring Eddie Guerrero and... Uh, Brian Christopher and all the FWA wrestlers, all the sort of up-and-coming British wrestling stars. So I travelled down to see the show, 
and I wrote a review of it. And I met Dan Reed, who's the current Pro Wrestling Eve commentator. Sorry, not commentator, Pro Wrestling Eve promoter, I should say. Yep. Um, who asked me to become a commentator on his first show. And uh, through also meeting Alex Shane at Revival and uh, writing that review and then getting a job with Power Slam magazine as a writer, I got invited to be part of the FWA as a manager. And there was one other manager in the FWA at that time. <laughs> and that was you, Dean. That was the twisted genius himself. Yes, it was. In the what? awkward, the awkward babyface manager phase, managing Paul Birchall. Yeah, the awkward babyface manager phase, and I came in as the, as the heel manager of the family, the three-time FWA tag team champions, and our paths would cross at a big show called FWA British Uprising Three at Coventry Skydome in two thousand and four where we managed opposing teams. And, Dean, who is it that who was on that team that you managed that you oh, were so fond of telling everyone? <laughs> well, well, it was, um, the, if I remember, the, the, the referee for the match was Jimmy Hart, and my team was Paul Birchall, uh, Paul Travell, and, and a guy you may have heard of called Terry Funk. Does he mention this a lot on the podcast, Liam? He does. Oh, this Terry Funk, I have to ask, is he like a local wrestler or...? I mean, does he does he have much of a resume in, in wrestling? He, he he was a he was a young kid from America. I think flew himself in to try and get uh, get a shot. You know, young but wrinkly. Yeah, that's the yeah. one. Yeah, that's the. But um, yeah, we 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 had a it, that was so much fun that that whole feud. I've I've got to say, I absolutely loved it. Even despite being the babyface manager, which never works, just the the interactions that Greg and I had was were always so much fun. Um. It's a shame we never got to do it again elsewhere, but uh, it's it's the few that will never quite die. It always bubbles under on the surface. But um, and then of course you you became a promoter in your own right. I did, yes. I mean, I, I was the booker of the FWA at first, and then when the FWA finished, when we had another confrontation, if you remember, Dean at IPW in two thousand and seven. Of course, um, we did. Yes, in all that one. Yeah, the FWA closed down. I formed the XWA. I promoted with the XWA for five years, before I, I passed it on to to Dan Reed. A lot of interconnecting here, in, sort of over the years in, in my wrestling career, and then from there, I suppose most notably, I became the commentator with PCW, who were I, you know one of the top. British wrestling promotions of the last five or six years. And oh. now I'm the booker with PCW. Oh, and, okay. And I'm also um, working at the moment for, as again, these things come full circle, Alex Shane, who <laughs> a lot of people will now know as the lead commentator on WOS Wrestling, which you just mentioned before on ITV on Saturday nights. So in that capacity, I'm uh, one of the website editors for the WrestleTalk website and uh, YouTube channel, which is highly successful. Uh, and also, I am doing a lot of work with the upcoming Wrestling MediaCon convention, which is taking place in Manchester on September the 8th and 9th. Yeah, it, tell it, us about that, because this seems really interesting. Um, this sounds like a... It's, it's the first of them, but it sounds like with a bit of luck, this will be the first of many. What, what can, so what, why should people go to the Wrestling Media Con? I just think it's a, a unique event. There's nothing like this ever been done 
in Britain mm. before. And, and to be honest with you, probably nothing quite like this anywhere because it's not just your regular wrestling fan convention, although there are a lot of elements of that where you can go and you can meet the wrestlers and have your photo taken with the wrestlers and talk to them and get up close and personal with them. And, and there's merchandise stalls and that kind of thing. But it's also, it's a media convention. So, you know, we've had such a huge explosion in recent year, years, as indeed we are doing a podcast right now. We've had a huge explosion of the online wrestling community, podcasts, YouTube channels, as I mentioned before, websites, yes. uh, Twitter, social media, Facebook, all that, all that sort of stuff. And a lot of these guys... I mean, I mentioned WrestleTalk before as an example. It's got nearly 600,000 subscribers worldwide, wow. which is insane. You know, we've got every – these guys put out a news update every – three news updates every day, and they're regularly watched by between 150,000 and 200,000 people a day watching these five-minute news bulletins about wrestling. And, and, and therefore, these guys have become – these YouTube personalities have become stars in their own right. And so they're going to do little panel shows at this uh, convention and there'll be big followings there watching them. There'll be, you know, names from the WWE in days of yore, like Pat Patterson's going to be there. who was like Vince McMahon's right-hand man. Um, Sean Waltman, ex-Pac, is going to be there and he's going to be doing a, a live interview with Pat Patterson. And then there's going to be things like cosplay competition, retro wrestling arcade game section we're doing a hall of fame where we're rewarding some of the big names in wrestling media over the years like dave Meltzer from the wrestling observer he's gonna be making a rare trip to the uk so and there's live wrestling as well there's a, there's a massive revolution yeah, got... wrestling show on there's impact wrestling versus the uk there's going to be something for every, everyone if you're into wrestling it, it's well worth going to two days where you're just going to immerse yourself in this big interactive experience i think and this is all happening up in manchester isn't it you say it certainly is yeah yeah www.wrestlingmediacon.com if you want your tickets yeah unfortunately greg you you've managed to book the event on the same day as my brother's 50th birthday so i think he'd be rather annoyed with me if i i missed out on that but liam you're going to be there uh, representing because wcw i will be there i'll be there for the whole thing i'll represent us solo don't you worry dino and bring your brother dean just bring him along. I'm sure he won't mind. Just bring him along. Yeah, what, love a, what a yeah. birthday present. Fantastic. You couldn't get him a better birthday present than that. Happy birthday, my brother, who doesn't watch wrestling. Here's Dave Meltzer. He'd love it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so, www.wrestlingmediacon.com. Yes. If you want to get tickets for that. Um also, while we're on the subject of Seamus uh, plugging, if you are listening to this um, within a few days of us releasing it, then uh, I am going to be hosting an evening with Abyss and Joseph Park, his brother, <coughs> uh, on Saturday, September the 1st um, at St Paul's in Worthing. And then later on in the month, we have got a big, big IPW anniversary weekender on the 22nd and 23rd of September at a new venue. It's at Moat Park Centre in Maidstone. Um, first night is the anniversary night where we've got British Strong Style, Pete Dunn, Trent Seven and Tyler Bay all appearing. Kip Sabian, the new world champion, defends against Doug Williams in a really interesting match there. Plus, we've got the product David Starr, Bad Bones and the IPW Women's Champion and May Young Classic comp competitor Zaya Brookside. Following night, the uh, 23rd in the same venue in Maidstone, we have got uh, Pro Wrestling Noah 
coming over for Global Clash, um, which includes Doug Williams and Namichi Marafuji in a rematch from just over 10 years ago of a fantastic match they had in Colchester for RQW, promotion that I used to commentate for. Plus, the criminally underrated Chris Ridgeway takes on uh, the GHC Junior Heavyweight Champion Daisuke Harada. Um, so all that and a lot more all come in there. It's going to be a fantastic weekend. Um, go to www.ipwuk.com or look up IPWUK on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and all the usual places for that. Listen up, slap nuts. That's right. This is Jeff Jarrett, the chosen one. And you're listening to Because WCW. Now choke on that. Right. Let's get on with WCW Beach Blast 92. Uh, Greg, any particular reason why you chose this pay-per-view? It was one of the very few I could remember. <laughs> <laughs> and when I watched it, I realized I didn't remember it quite as well as, as, I, as I had. Um, but I, th- I think the other reason is because this was the era, well, I mean, the whole of, sort of the WCW, I suppose, was the era of the VHS the, the video cassette and the Beach Plat Blast video cassette, I remember buying from Woolworths, uh, as as I, as, I, as a lot of the, the WCW cassettes were on sale there at the time, the dearly, de- dearly departed Woolworths. And I think it's got very funky artwork, I have to say. It's it very does, beach, yes. very beachy. It's got the surf. It's got the palm trees. It's got the beach, the, the, the golden sandy colours. So it, it really stuck in my mind for that reason. Yeah, and do and, you guys do you guys know where this pay per view was held? By the way, it was held uh, in Mobile, Alabama. Right, yeah. right by the beach, right by the beach in Mobile, Mobile, Alabama. Yep. <laughs> it's nowhere near the it's nowhere near the coast. Mind you, IPW recently did a beach party in Manchester, so you know. We also, and this is something we, we were chatting about just before we started recording. It's something I'm sure we'll we'll mention uh, as we go on. For me, and I'm sure it was the same for you, Greg, that this is the era of WCW Worldwide Wrestling being shown at about 3 o'clock in the morning on regional ITV channels on a Saturday night. Yeah, that's right. I I have a feeling, actually, that when WCW Worldwide was first shown on ITV, it was a little bit earlier than that, and I have a feeling it was midweek. I think it would have started either late 1989 or early 1990, I think. Ah, you see, down, down south we got it. I think it was... I think it was 91, because I remember one of the early episodes being Abdul the Butcher debut by being presented in a big box and coming out and attacking Sting. Ah, right. That was definitely 91. I think, yeah, yeah, we we got it different. It was regional ITV variations. I think we got it later than than you guys. That's right, the north ahead of the south again. There you go. So, so, yeah, we did. Yeah, when we had, I think when I first watched it, it was the era of people like Captain Mike Rotunda and Eddie Gilbert and Samoan SWAT team and... So yeah, 80, I think late 89, I think. That would, yeah, that would be 89, yes. But, but you're right, it was on every... That was the only way of watching WCW. I mean, if you wanted to see the pay-per-views, I suppose, um, you had to buy VHS. You had to either hope they were going to be in your local store or get in touch with a tape trader. And an hour, an hour a week, some, sometimes they showed highlights of some of the big match finishes from the big shows on Worldwide, but... Yeah, you, that was few and far between, really. Yes, and I, I was one of those tape traders. I remember getting this and selling copies of it. I do apologise and 
please don't come after me, Federation Against Copyright Theft, the company doesn't exist anymore. Anyway, um, so we have a, an intro uh, on the screen, which I, I, I it reminded me of the opening graphics of Saved by the Bell, which is very much <laughs> of its time. Um, so yeah, we're definitely in the early 90s. Um, and uh, our four featured contests. The first contest mentioned is the bikini contest between Misty Hart and Medusa. Plus, we've got the Steiners v. Williams and Gordy, um, where it's asked if the Steiners can send them packing back to Japan. Uh, political correctness is not in its uh, height in this show. Um, falls count anywhere on the Gulf Coast between Sting and Cactus Jack and the Iron Man match between Rick Frude and Ricky Steamboat. And uh, as we've said, just we're in Mobile, Alabama for the inaugural WCW Beach Blast. Um, so then we, uh, we go straight away to Tony Schiavone and Eric Bischoff. Uh, and Bischoff is wearing a, a hideous orange Hawaiian shirt. They introduce us to the show. Um, and they then bring in Bill Watts, who's looking very official in his WW T-shirt and bum bag. Um, and this is for what seemed to be a, a regular feature in 1992 pay-per-views in this era, the Bill Watts admin spot, Liam. Oh, fucking hell. Yeah. <laughs> well, those, those of you who listened to the Halloween Havoc 92 podcast, which wasn't too long ago, uh, which obviously, that was obviously the... That was the pay-per-view that was just absolutely knee-deep in Bill Watts' booking. This one, we, you know, we also covered WrestleWar 92 just before, or, or it happened just after he took control. And now we've got this one, which, as we'll cover as we go along, is very very middle of the road. He's he's made a few marks on the product, and yet there's still a lot of things that he was yet to ruin or alter depending on your point of view but yeah this one he couldn't wait to get this one on fast enough and those of you who also watch a little bit of boxing i know that includes the two of you will see a little similarity to to something you get a lot on sky boxing at the moment is that bill watts is basically the the prototype for eddie fucking hearn and he's endless throwing himself in front of the camera to <laughs> to talk to talk about stuff that doesn't need to be talked about on a live sporting broadcast. Uh, yeah, it's, it's basically self-promotion. Con- I, I, I this call is it, very true. When it comes to Eddie Hearn, I'm pretty sure it's contractually obliged that he gets to just mug for the camera as much as humanly possible. And Bill Watts has got him beat by, you know, a couple of decades. Fair play to Bill Watts. Oh, nice. Well, yes, our, our admin for the evening from Bill was that Paulie Denshaw and Medusa are banned from ringside for the Iron Man match. We then throw to Jim Ross, who's also in a hideous Hawaiian shirt. Uh, and then we go up to the ramp where the, a beach has been set up because, as we've established, uh, Mobile, Alabama is obviously right on the coast. And Jesse Ventura is lying on a sun lounger surrounded by four women in bikinis. Um after five minutes of all this shit, we're finally ready to have a wrestling match, which is a bit of a novelty on a wrestling pay-per-view, I know. Um, and our opening match is for the WCW World t- uh, Light Heavyweight title. The challenger is Scotty Flamingo. The champion is Brian Pillman. So on paper, this should be very good. Um, Scotty Flamingo is a, a brash, cocky character, a, a less funny version of Johnny Polo in the WWF and obviously a million miles away from the Raven character that made his career. 
Um, we start off with some smooth mat work from Pillman. Uh, he's working on Flamingo's left arm with a Fujiwara armbar and a version of a cross arm breaker. The action picks up with a flying head scissors and a drop kick, which results in Flamingo hanging upside down from the top rope by his feet. Uh, Pillman goes up to the top rope before being reminded by the ref that that's a disqualification in Bill Watts' stupid rules of WCW. No top rope moves allowed, yet we've got a light heavyweight division. Um, he gets caught and thrown off the top by Flamingo. The tide turns. Pace slows down again on the 10-minute mark as both men sell the punishment they've taken. Pillman gets a near fall with a crossbody block. Uh, but Flamingo neutralizes him with a huge clothesline. Flamingo misses a splash into the corner, which he sells magnificently. Um, he then counters sleeper hold by running towards the corner and ducking down. So Pillman head hits the corner, which is a very nice looking spot. A second rope axe handle from uh, Flamingo is countered by a Pillman drop kick, uh, which is a move which should look even more spectacular if it was off the top. Pillman's now taken over on Flamingo. A second rope belly to back suplex from Pillman gets a two count. Um, Flamingo gets clotheslined over the top onto the ramp, but then Pillman dives over the top, misses him, and crashes face first onto the ramp. Flamingo comes off the um, middle rope with an odd looking knee to the side of Pillman's head as he gets back into the ring to get the pinfall in 17 minutes 29 seconds. We have a new WCW World Light Heavyweight Champion. So to me, I would say this was a decent opener, but it felt like it could have been a lot better. The pace never got there, and and obviously I think it was harmed by that that um, top rope ruling. What were your thoughts on this one, Greg? Yeah, it's all right, isn't it? As as, as openers go, I think. But I mean, Brian Pillman. I mean, the first thing that strikes me is 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 Brian. You got to bear in mind what I'm watching this match, and I'm I'm thinking I'm fast forwarding in my head, and I'm thinking this is the loose cannon against Raven. And they don't look anything like the loose cannon or Raven. And, you know, if I can just get a little bit dark for a minute, just over five years after this match happens, Brian Pillman's no longer with us. And yet he looks in the prime of his life. You know, there's obviously a lot of stuff going on, um, you know, which has been well documented in terms of, you know, various issues that he had. Yeah. But you would never know because he's in, he's in fantastic shape. He's moving brilliantly. He's got that, you know, the long, the long blonde hair, the, 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 the real kind of heartthrob look. I mean, he was at the time one of the top workers in, in WCW. There's, there's no two ways about it. And had been, you know, pretty much three years solid, just come off that feud with Jushin Liger. And I think yep. the, the issue really was is that it's not just, I don't think it's just the fact that Bill Watts decided to ban the moves off the top rope, although that is a nonsensical decision. You're absolutely right. He's suffering a bit, I think, from the quality of the opposition in the WCW light heavyweight division because after Liger came in for that brief period and got everybody going wow, you know, because at the time some of the moves that Pillman and Liger were doing in those matches just hadn't been seen in North America. Um, where do you go after that? You go to Scott, Scotty Flamingo, who incidentally about two weeks later lost the title to Brad Armstrong. So... <laughs> You know, I think that's that was part of the issue. Flamingo style was not a cruiserweight style. It was very much he was you know he was a lighter weight wrestler, but he was very methodical in the way that he wrestled. So, you know, you got a solid opening match, but ne never something that was ever going to live up to what Pillman had done with Liger and, you know, I think what he w was capable of doing had they 
you know, looked elsewhere in New Japan at the time and maybe brought a few other guys in, you know, people like El Samurai or guys like that. Mm. And I mean, Brad Armstrong is one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. I think he's always been criminally underrated, but he's boring. At, Dean. at the same time, he was never box office. That was the, no, it, that was yeah. the He's just he was just blah blah. Which, which is why he was always put under under masks and in different characters because the wrestling itself was absolutely top notch. But yeah, it was the it was the marketability it was always a problem with him. But I think you know the the match itself, like I said, the match itself was good. Um, I think that the finish bothered me a little bit. Although I did you know I, I thought that the dive over the top rope where he hit his head on the 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 wonderful never ending WCW rampway. Uh, that was a creative way to kind of, you know, it's like the commentary team was brilliant on that as well. Jim Ross and Jesse Ventura did a fantastic job of selling the fact that Pillman was in control of the match. He took an unnecessary chance. He leapt over the top rope and he cracked his head. But then Flamingo, you actually said he hit the knee to the side of the head. If you watch it back, I think it lands it in the ribs. And that didn't make any sense to me. If the guy just knocked himself out, why, why is he doing that? But, oh. you know, it's... Um, it's a it's 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 a good opener. It's it's a, it's a decent opening match, but it's just kind of odd watching it with the benefit of hindsight. I think. Yeah, I, I think this could possibly be the best wrestling match in history that has been the death knell for an entire aspect of a promotion. In this instance, this match pretty much tells everyone, especially with the benefit of hindsight, that the light heavyweight division is doomed under bill watts uh you get your first little hint during that eddie hernesque spill at the beginning the the manner in which watts is is trying to complement the division but he's doing so in such a backhanded condescending way with the these smaller guys they they have to use their technique so it's gonna be really interesting it's just fucking horrendous might as well just go out and call it a sideshow. Uh, and then you have this match, which I, I, I agree with you guys. It's a good match between two good workers. But it is, already the division has been stripped of those things that make a light heavyweight division work, make it different. And we've repeated this over the course of history since 1992 many, many times. The most recent best example being... Uh, 205 Live, especially early doors. I know it's picked up a little bit as far as quality content-wise the last six months, but the start of 205 Live was a great comparison to what we're getting here. All those little aspects, and it's not just the top rope thing. The, you can tell there's uh, production mandates as far as not really be able to, being able to work to the benefit of a, of a light heavyweight match, especially in the opening match, that tends to hurt a little bit. It's far slower than it could and should be. Uh, we always discuss yeah. the art of the opener, and you, you need a little bit more of that uh, that zest, that zeal. You've got a hot crowd. I know they do their, their traditional thing, WCW, of talking for 10 minutes at the start, which kind of pulls the live crowd a little bit away. But these two are the guys that can that can 
let you get away with these extended talking segments and Jesse Ventura being fondled by a bunch of bikini clad women is you get them straight back into action with something like this. That didn't happen and I'm glad you brought up the finish as well because yeah, the, the dive that failed psychologically sound, like the rest of this match, psychologically sound, it's very good. And the finish w made a lot of sense to have him risk it all, hit hard, but you, you're already dicing with chance a little bit, I think, by having an opening match where the hill goes over. Art of the opener, we always discuss, and I think one of the best things is you have the popular hand raised in the first match. It's always a go-to thing. It's It doesn't have to be that way. It can be done with a hill going over in the opener. But if they were going to get here, I think the biggest problem was, as you said, that knee, wherever it was to finish. Now, imagine this, guys. Imagine... Pillman jumps over the ropes, splats. He did it perfectly. His arms protected him. It still looked like death. Flamingo rolls him in the ring and hits a sweet pole driver for the finish. The fans are going to see this and think, oh my God, that could be it. And, and the suspense of the count is going to be there. And there's going to be probably going to be a gasp for the finish. Instead, he hits this lame knee. And people think it's the start of another, oh, Pillman's in trouble. And in the hand... Slaps them out a third time, and they're like, "Oh, it's over." And you can hear that yeah. in the crowd. It's so they've they've done such a poor job. Uh, whoever's produced this match of anticipating crowd reaction, and of all the times to anticipate crowd reaction, the opener is the easiest time to do that. So it's such a shame. But all these little signs are just telling you, yeah, be, before Brad Armstrong even wins the title later. Purely because you know, we've all heard the stories about Pillman and Watts. He just wanted it on someone else he could uh, lowball and control a little better. He wanted Pillman to accept a far lower uh, salary, didn't he? Uh, so all of this, to pretty much kill the division, was for that. Which is a shame because, yeah, as you guys said, it weren't a super strong division. We mentioned this at the Wrestle War uh, podcast where you had the war games. So there were a lot of light heavyweight matches on that show. Uh, three or four, I think, if if you remember, Dean, and yeah. we said it was it was a good way of showcasing. But the division looked like it just needed that strength. A few more guys come in, establish the guys you've got, and the best way to have done that at this point, yeah, with no Liger anymore, Pillman is head and shoulders above. You have him as the uh, as the touring defending champion, beating everyone. You have guys like Flamingo throw up a hurdle, but someone of Pillman's quality is able to fall them all until you can find that guy to be his next Liger-esque rival. And they've just killed it right at the gate. So in one match, a division's been destroyed. And normally when you see an entire aspect of wrestling get destroyed, it's in a pathetic match or a pathetic decision. Uh, in this case, it's 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 a good match, but if you look very closely, the omens are there. But is this is this this is the period? I think you alluded to it before. Is this the period where basically Pillman's losing every match because him and Watts have had this big falling out over money, and that's the reason why it's happening? Is that I, is that the reason? I why? believe yeah. yeah, this would be the beginning that getting the title off him, and by the time we get to Halloween Havoc '92, which we covered in a previous episode, yeah, he had he had just turned heel, he'd had a losing streak, and he was getting sick. So this is the way they were going with it. 
Okay, so it's now time for the first of three rounds in the Missy Hyatt Medusa Bikini Contest to determine who is the first lady of WCW. Uh, it's hosted by Johnny B. Bad, much to the annoyance of Jesse Ventura, who uh, wanted this gig. Um, can't quite imagine this happening in uh, 2018, but this <laughs> is 1992. Um, he explains that round one is evening dresses, round two is swimwear, and round three is... Itsy bitsy teeny weeny bikinis. And you can vote for your choice of winner by calling the WCW 1900 hotline number. Um, bear in mind you're already paying for this pay per view, and I think you can vote as many times as you want. So this is a great money making scheme, and nobody's taking a single bump. So in that respect, you have to tip your hat to WCW. Uh, Missy Hyatt is wearing a white sparkling evening gown, and Medusa appears to be in some sort of wedding dress in a, with a veil, which, of course, is traditional evening wear in Alabama. Um, and we then throw to Ross and Ventura, and then we throw to Bischoff and Shivani. So um, any thoughts on the uh, bikini contest, or should we uh, carry on until we uh, get to the conclusion later on? Um, well, yeah, I'd, I'd just like to point out at this stage that I actually had quite fond memories of Johnny B. Bad um, from, from when I was sort of, you know, a, a wet-behind-the-ears wrestling fan. I'd, before, you know, just bear in mind this is, this is well before, um, you know, he went to WWF and uh, changed character completely and, and all the Sable kind of stuff, but I remembered him as this, you know, fun-loving, flamboyant guy, and, and WCW didn't have that many flamboyant guys, and I've always been a big fan of guys with larger-than-life personalities. And and when I saw him host this bikini contest, I thought, what did I ever see in this guy? It made me actually long for the days of Wild Man Mark Merrow because he, he doesn't... He, he, <laughs> He doesn't do anything, doesn't say anything. He just, like, stands there, you know, mugging at the camera, going, I'm a bad man, and whoa, baby! And, and, and he doesn't really do anything else. Well, the lines he's been fed are awful as well. That doesn't really help things. No, but I think, I think Jesse Ventura was right. He should, have, he should have hosted it, because when the two of them were stood together... I mean, Ventura owns most people verbally anyway, but the difference in charisma between the, the non-wrestler... And the the guy who's like you know one of the top mid card baby faces in WCW at the time was startling, and I didn't remember. That's not how I remembered it. So it was again one of these things that I, I felt like the whole pay per view is kind of <laughs> I don't know. It was kind of built up at the time as one of the the best of the era, and you watch it back now, and yeah. A lot of things don't stand up. <laughs> yeah, and Johnny B. Bad was one of them. Yeah, I mean, I I remember I remember enjoying the bikini contest tremendously uh, back in 1992, but that's because back in 1992 I was a uh, teenage boy filled with hormones. So um, hey, listen, it was right no, no, listen, my street. listen, no, certain aspects of the bikini contest I I enjoyed immensely as well. <laughs> but even now, you know, but um, I, I didn't enjoy. <laughs> I didn't. I mean, I'm sure we'll get to segment three. Where oh yes. the, where the problems really start. <laughs> uh, yeah. That that aspect of it, yeah, and bad and Ventura's yeah, involvement. The, uh... Yeah, that that yeah, that yeah. I I didn't didn't. It was just hands, you know, head yeah. facing hands cringe. Yeah, that's that. Is segment three is where the offences really mount up. Yeah. Yes. But um, 
let's move swiftly on to match number two. Yes, we're half an hour into the pay-per-view and it's time for match number two. It's the tailor-made man, which was uh, Terry Taylor's kind of million-dollar man style uh, gimmick versus Ron Simmons. Um, our referee is a pre-Fonzie Bill Alfonso. And this, this is basically, uh, we were talking about WCW Worldwide earlier. This is a WCW Worldwide staple match, but it's on pay-per-view. Um, you know, in those episodes, back in those days, you would get a bunch of squash matches and one feature match between two named wrestlers at the end. And this kind of match would be the, the your main event. Um, Simmons is dominating early with a press slam, the clothesline over the top that sends the tailor-made man crashing to the floor at Jesse Ventura's feet. Taylor counters with a bear hug with a thumb uh, and a, a thumb to the eye. Um, Taylor dodges a football tackle, which sends Simmons out the ring and onto the ramp for the second match in a row. Taylor is now in control and hits a rolling neck snap, a la Mr. Perfect. Um, he then goes straight into a chin lock off the back of this. Um, this whole match is, 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 at this point, is very much plodding. Um, Simmons gets back in control of the match after a sidewalk slam. He then lands a high backdrop on Taylor and gets the win with a very snappy power slam in 7 minutes 10. Um, a nothing match really. Simmons has a brief post-match promo with Jim Ross where he says he'll win the WCW World Title. I like the promo. I was surprised. Actually, that was one that was one positive surprise on the show because you're right. The match was pretty just sort of there, wasn't it? Really, Taylor's on his way out. He's one of the many who's going to leave WCW this year. Uh, I'm not sure whether he fell out with Watts or what, but most of them did, didn't they? Um, but uh, and Simmons is obviously the guy who, who Watts is going to push towards the WCW Championship, like you said. But Simmons was never particularly known for his promos at all until he they realised that and just gave him one word to say. And <laughs> many years many years <laughs> later in WWE, but um, I actually thought, and I don't know whether this was again because of hindsight, because I remember watching a um, a show on the network two years ago where, where Ron Simmons was interviewed by his old tag team partner, John Bradshaw Layfield for the legend series. And he, he started talking about his upbringing and how, uh, when he was eight years old, his mum died and his dad left home. And he was basically left to fend for himself as a kid. And he had a really, really tough upbringing. Um, so when I heard him doing that promo and he was talking about how, you know, if anyone, you know, if, if I can do it, then anyone can do it. And he, there was some real kind of, passion in, in what he was saying and and there was some reality in what he was saying as well and I've always liked promos that really touch on reality so although you know you wouldn't say it was by any means the greatest promo of all time I think you know expectations had a lot to do with it I, I wasn't expecting much from it but I thought he did a really good job with that and he, you know I would have got behind him I think maybe he could have made more of his real life situation brought that more into it perhaps and I'm sure that I'm, I'm surprised if Bill Watts didn't know about it. That he wasn't encouraging that. But um, yeah, decent job with the promo. And obviously he he went on six weeks later to become the WCW champion. Yeah. What, yeah. What's probably thought that him being black was enough, to be honest. Knowing what we know now. Well, about Bill yeah. Watts. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I have to agree about the promo. I did not realise until I watched this show again, just how good he was there that was a very good promo that was a money promo i actually we know how much the simmons world title reign failed in the areas they wanted it to succeed but 
that had me believing that it could work, even though I knew otherwise. I, I really like that too. Um, this match, I think the phrase, this was there, applies to that. This match was there, basically. Uh, and it was two for two in matches on this show where Bill Watts has called his shot from a mile off. He made his intentions clear, unfortunately, with a light heavyweight division as a whole with that opener. He made his intentions clear of what he's going to do with Ron Simmons here, because that's what this match was. It was a it was a device for that. Simmons is a contender. He's going to go places. Uh, and it served his purpose, and I can see why they picked the tailor-made man for that. Also because he's outgoing, but he's, you know, he, he kept it together for what it was. He was the he was the glue of the match. Simmons did his baby face fire and hit his finisher. And, you know, Simmons was always quite limited, so it was for the best. And so we had that. Look, Simmons is going to be in bigger matches from here on out. Take heed, audience, and let's move on, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's worth saying that Bill Watts was essentially trying to recreate the huge success he'd had in the UWF with the Junkyard Dog um, and just basically seemed to think that just getting a man of the same ethnicity would do do the trick for him. And uh, Sim, I mean, I do remember Simmons having great promos that always reminded me of like a, a southern preacher, basically, of the, uh, like you say, you know, the... the the rousing of the troops, the if I can do it, you can do it stuff. But he I had think the Ron... heart, didn't he? He had the heart behind his, his words. Yeah. Which oh, is absolutely. important for a babyface. It didn't sound false in a least bit, mostly because, yeah. as you said, it's it's a true story. So that really helps. Yeah. You believed you believed in him, but I think unfortunately the junkyard dog in Louisiana, especially not so much elsewhere, but in Louisiana, he had that magic, that connection with the crowd that Simmons unfortunately didn't quite replicate, I suppose. Yeah, and I think you guys hit the nail on the head to an extent, is that it did need that little extra human interest. This was the start of it. That promo could have been the start of digging deeper. Shot. I remember when he, because he actually had a world title shot before this, at Halloween Havoc 91. You talk about your VHS Against tapes. Against Lex Luger. Yeah. Yes. Lambert talks about VHS tapes of WCW. I only ever owned one. I found, by chance... Halloween Havoc 91 with the Chamber of Fucking Horrors. We'll get into that on a on a future episode for sure. Uh, Crisp Street Market, not not far from my house in East London. Uh, I, I couldn't even find him in Wolves. I found this tape, and on that show, there was Ron Simmons. And they did a thing there where he went back to his to his high school. Because he was very decorated, wasn't he? And they mentioned that at, at this yeah. show. And they went into how he was a superstar player in Florida and, and this, that and the other. I'm not I'm not completely brushed up with exactly who he played for or this, that. And I thought that, that was a pretty good... If you're going to try and make people care about this guy who's basically been boosted up from mid-card obscurity to challenge the world champion, I thought to myself, that's a good way to start. And this promo was, was the way to kickstart it. I think if... Um, if this was happening nowadays, you would get that real-life story because the... But at this time, they didn't talk much about wrestlers' real lives or the real people behind the characters. The only thing they would do, and I think this was from like the Jim Ross influence and and Bill Bill Watts as well. They would talk about you know college football and real yeah. sporting achievements, but that was where the line was drawn. 
and things about tough upbringings, tough childhood, stuff like that. Things you, you've seen like where they've promoted Rich Swan in the WWE before with, with his childhood. That didn't happen then. It happens now because of social media, because of information being out there, which wasn't at that time. So maybe you know, Ron Simmons was in the, the right place at the wrong time or something. I don't know. Probably Bill, and probably Bill Watts might have just said to him, "What you were you were orphaned at the age of eight? You need to man up, man. I'm going to pull her back the mats and make you dive on concrete." You know. <laughs> this 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 I, I was like my point it. earlier. This is pretty much what Watts comes down to. He, he basically looks at it and he thinks, "Oh, you know, you're one of those ghetto guys, Rafa. People just get that instantly. You know, you go out there and be you, and that's it. Smell the money. And yeah, it doesn't work. I, I think a good modern equivalent." would be, did you guys check out the Roderick Strong videos they did on NXT when he was a babyface singles challenging Bobby Roode for the title? They were some of the best I've seen. That would have been a great example to do. And I know what you're saying about the different eras, but I think only a few years after that, they were starting to peel the curtain a little bit more during the Attitude Era, and definitely in the early Attitude Era, where you had some of those adverts, including people like Ron Simmons and Ken Shamrock, talking about their backgrounds and the the reality of of pro wrestling. So there wasn't that much of a difference. They only would have been a couple years ahead of time, and usually the best things are a couple years ahead of time. So that's what Ron Simmons needed to succeed, if if anything was going to work, in my opinion. Okay, let's go straight into match number three, because that's what we do on the pay-per-view. It's uh, more WCW Worldwide fodder in a clash of youth versus experience as Marcus Alexander Bagwell takes on Greg the Hammer Valentine, who is, of course, the Taylor May man's tag team partner. Um, an early attempt at a pile driver by Valentine brings the crowd to life. They, they do seem to be much more in favour of Valentine than the babyface Bagwell, however. Um, Valentine lands three big chops. And one thing that when I was watching this that really stood out in my mind was that um, obviously we, we lost Jim Neidhart a few uh, weeks ago. Um, and I, I had the great pleasure of uh, doing a brief tour with Hamelot Wrestling with Jim Neidhart in 1996. And we realized actually how many stories we'd got from just three nights with, with the guy. But one thing I remember him saying was that out of everyone in the business, Greg the Hammer Valentine had the hardest chops going. Um, and you, you do see it here. And also the other thing that he mentioned, which people seem to forget about these days, is that you should always chop away from the heart. Um, lots of people chop on the sort of the, the, the recipient's left-hand side, which isn't so good. You should chop on their right-hand side on the right pectoral because it's away from the heart to avoid damage to the heart. There you go. Rest in peace, Jim Neidhart. Um so this is this is all Valentine now. He's in charge. The pace is methodical as you'd expect with him. Um the story is he's trying to control the uh, the match and the pace against the inexperienced Bagwell. Valentine misses a second rope elbow drop, but Bagwell then misses a knee drop, and the veteran then starts to work on Bagwell's leg. Um, Bagwell lands a nice float over suplex, but he's really selling his leg, doing very well with that, showing some nice baby face fire. But then when he lands on the leapfrog, he injures his leg, um, and Valentine clamps on the figure four leg lock, and gets a submission victory in 7 minutes 17. And while it was slow-paced, to me, this match t- told a good story, and it held my interest. Well, it didn't hold mine. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> well, I mean, one thing I used to notice about WCW, and it was particularly obvious on Worldwide, is that virtually every sort of mid-card babyface at the time in WCW, I think they were contractually obliged to deliver a, 
at least 10 arm drags into an arm bar in every single match they did. <laughs> yes. And, you know, Pillman, Zenk, Bagwell then turned up the, the year before. I think 91 was his debut and started doing exactly the same thing. Uh, I have a feeling that when Chris Jericho did his famous uh, listed off his, his list of 1,001 holds in 1997 and, and, and mentioned arm bar, and, and actually turned it into a running joke. That's actually what eradicated the armbar from professional wrestling. <laughs> you know, you know, everyone was too embarrassed to, to slap it on. Um, but that, that wasn't happening back then. And I mean, I like Greg Valentine. I, I, I really liked him. I, I remember very fondly the match he had with uh, Ronnie Garvin at Royal Rumble 1990, sub submission match, which was one of the most underrated matches, I think, from that period of time in, in the WWF. Uh, but here it's kind of, to me, it's it's two guys. Bagwell's obviously very hungry, and, and and he and Valentine. I was I was listening to Valentine on a shoot interview we did, and he had a lot of respect for Bagwell. He liked he liked Bagwell, so they obviously you know a bit of bit of chemistry together. But you know Bag Bagwell's still very young. Valentine's coming towards the end of his career. Neither of them are particularly two guys I cared about. So. Yeah, I think similar to Simmons v Taylor, the match was was just there. Yeah, see, see, I've got to sway this two to one in Dean's favour. Well, I've got to, I've got to say as a disclaimer, I don't remember much about this match at all from around the nineties and when those were still around. So my my original realm of fandom does not remember this match. But then, you know, we're at a time where you have a little bit more interest in seeing baby faces do well and this, that, the other. Uh, that's un that's understandable, I suppose. But what I liked about this match was definitely a a looking back in retrospect with, with grizzled eyes, I suppose you could say, because I loved watching seven minutes of Greg Valentine taking this over-pushed rookie to fucking school. And that's what this was. And another thing I loved is that when they did the spot where... Bagwell hurts his knee again on the leapfrog. The crowd actually really react to that because they know what's coming, which is actual psychology employed on a live crowd, which, you know, half of these podcasts we spend talking about how they, how WWE tends to forget the live crowd's existence. So that was good to see. Um, yeah, it, it served a, a very minute purpose, but it served a purpose nonetheless. And, I enjoyed it for that, I suppose. But um, it, it does occur to me that Greg Valentine is probably one of the, if not the only wrestler who has managed to make a decent living out of being plodding and actually made it into an engrossing character trait. Because he is that, everyone talks about that, that methodical guy, the guy who needs 15 minutes in a match just to get warmed up. And, and, and people accept it. And... He makes it work. Good luck to him. I, t I think I, t Fair play. Yeah, I, I tend to like Greg Valentine a little bit more now these days because I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but he caught a bit of heat a few years ago with some comments about women's wrestling. Do you remember that? No. He said he, he, he didn't like women wrestling, wasn't comfortable with it. They shouldn't be doing it. They should be valets and that's it. And I was like, wow. 
the hell with you, you know, equality and that. And understandably so, there was a bit of uproar. But then he did, he actually did an AMA on Reddit several months back. That I, and I, when I saw he was doing one, I saw, I was really, I knew someone was going to ask him about that. They had to. And someone did. They, they asked him about his comments. And I always remember his answer because this is so rare, especially in the realm of pro wrestling. But when he was asked about his, his you know, what can easily and understandably be construed as a sexist slant on women wrestling. He said, you know, that my, my beliefs, I was just brought up to, to, to not want to see women in a physically demanding environment. But since then, people have told me, you know, those that didn't just swear and shout at me, they said, here, watch this match, watch this promotion. So I watched some and I thought they were doing a really good job. Even saying that, he said, I will just never be comfortable with it. And I thought, you know, it's an understandable stance. And in a, in a realm where everyone is either one extreme or the other, I was like, hey, there's a human being in pro wrestling. So I kind of like him even more for that. Even though I disagree yeah. with his stance on women's wrestling, I, I, I kind of I, I understand the nuance of his reasonings and his rationale. Okay. Well, it was in the first match I live WWF match I ever saw, incidentally. Oh against, really? Against Haku at the GMEX Centre in Manchester in nineteen ninety one. Oh no, Greg, does that mean you actually had to watch Babyface Greg Valentine live? Yes. Oh I'm, I'm so Babyface sorry. Babyface Greg Valentine against Haku in the opening match of a show which I think was main evented by Davy Boy Smith against Ted DiBiase. And, and Andre was on it. A special appearance by Andre. I'm actually privileged to say that I saw Andre live. Do you know what? I, I think my first WWF show was that same tour because it was May 1991 at the Brighton Centre and I'm pretty sure the, most, the first match was Harker and Greg Valentine. Our main event there was the British Bulldog, I think, against The Undertaker rather than Ted DiBiase. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but it was the same yeah, tour. Undertaker wasn't on the show I saw, but I think he was on that tour, so, yeah. 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 I, I, sorry, I, I completely digress from your very um, impassioned defence of Greg Valentine. And, yeah, I have no problem with Greg Valentine at all, but that match, yeah. Maybe maybe it was because I was looking... Maybe it was because I was looking forward to what was coming next, and maybe, that, maybe that's the reason why, but it kind of passed me by a little bit. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, let's move on to match number four. It is one of our featured matches. Uh, this is our Fools Count Anywhere on the Gulf Coast match between Sting and Cactus Jack. Now, when we've talked on previous podcasts about some of the great rivalries in WCW and the NWA... We've talked about contrasting characters. So, you know, Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat, which is replicated in the way with Rick Rude and Ricky Steamboat later on, or even Flair and Dusty Rhodes. And, and you could not ask for two more contrasting characters than Sting and Cactus Jack. Um, so Cactus waits on the ramp for Sting to come out, and we start the match at a fast pace with a brawl on the ramp. In fact, this whole match is at a fast pace. Um, Cactus gets bounced off the ropes, takes a backdrop on the ramp, Sting keeps on going for the pin, which you don't always see in Falls Count Anywhere matches, so that is a good sign. Um, Sting goes for a dive back into the ring, which Cactus avoids, and Sting lands badly. Cactus hits his patented elbow drop from the apron to the floor. Um, they're both taking bumps on the bare concrete. Um, Cactus goes for a sunset flip from the apron to the floor. You're watching him taking all these bumps, and you're cringing while you're watching it. 
Um, the brawl continues on the other side of the guardrail into the crowd. They've not even made it into the ring yet. Crowd are absolutely loving this. Uh, they finally get into the ring at the five-minute mark. We uh, curiously have some mat work with the body scissors from Cactus. Then uh, the famous Cactus clothesline sends them back to the floor again. Cactus uses a chair across Sting's back. All the while on commentary, Jesse Ventura keeps questioning why the world champion Sting got himself involved in this non-title match with Cactus. And he talks about his upcoming title defense against Big Van Vader at the next month's pay-per-view, The Great American Bash, where, with the benefit of hindsight, of course, we know Big Van Vader beats Sting for the belt. Um, Sting sends Cactus crashing back into the concrete with a belly-to-back suplex. Uh, he misses a stinger splash and lands ribs first onto the guardrail. Cactus leaps off the middle turnbuckle to the floor but misses his target and they make their way back up the ramp where Sting slams Cactus before getting a chair of his own which he smacks across Cactus's back. Uh, Cactus hits the double arm DDT onto the ramp. He only gets a two count. Sting drops Cactus with a running clothesline on the ramp followed by a flying clothesline off the top rope to the ramp. Um, no DQs in this, obviously, so uh, top rope moves are allowed. And Sting gets the win in 11 minutes 24 of an intense, memorable brawl. Um, I thought, bear in mind this was a mainstream promotion as opposed to like a, an Eastern USA indie or something like that. I thought this delivered exactly as promised. Um, and this is also a match that Foley mentions as one of the best, his best in his first book. And, and you can see why here. I mean, this was the Cactus Jack show, but Sting most certainly held up his end of the bargain as well. Yeah, I, I mean, again, I think you've got to look at it through 1992 eyes, if I'm being yeah. honest. I, th I think that, um, you know, if you watch it today and you were to compare it to some of the stuff we've, we see on NXT or New Japan or that sort of thing, you know, it, it's, it's you know, that's surpassed it. But you've got to remember that in 1992, Falls Count Anywhere is a very new concept. I think, actually, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing it was introduced in North America for Cactus Jack, in, certainly in mainstream promotions, the, the first Falls Count Anywhere match I remember was the one he had with Van Hammer some months before this, I think. And I don't remember any other Falls Count Anywhere matches in, in either of the main two promotions before that. So it's very new. And it's, a, yeah, you're right. It's, it's a fast-paced brawl for the time. The, the stuff happens in it that... that, that just didn't happen but of course nowadays if you know we've been conditioned i suppose through the attitude era that if there's a false count anywhere match you might end up in the in the in the car park or on the banks of a river or, <laughs> although obviously it wasn't you know in mobile the river the, the, the sea was some far away as we've already some distance away as we've already established well the um the van hammer match that you mentioned because they do actually show a clip of that before this match begins and that ended up um outside the building in you know, it wasn't a car park it looked like some sort of like cattle ranch or something yeah, because um, van ham yeah stables yeah i think it was that like, because van hammer gets clobbered around the back of the head by abdullah the butcher brandishing a shovel um he does and then cactus jack smacks him before yes. making the cover which is brilliant but yeah but yeah i mean it's um sting and sting and foley i mean that i'm a massive fan of foley's first book i think it's the it's, it's with Bret Hart. It's it's the best wrestling book that's ever ever been written for me. He speaks very fondly about the match. Like you say, it was it was his favorite for for many many years. The, the favorite match he ever had, and he speaks about how when he first met Sting, Sting didn't know what to make of him at all. This this, this crazy unruly guy who 
you know, was quite happy to punish himself. But I think he, he, he sort of turned Sting around because he um, he he was he had ideas. You know, I think Sting was impressed by the fact that, that Foley was creative and and um, passionate and. They eventually really enjoyed working together, and you, you can you can tell, I think. And again, Ross and Ventura do a tremendous job on commentary, and that really adds to it. Yeah, uh, for what I like most about coming into this is I remember we we speak in every episode about the whole WCW Worldwide era. And as I say, for for, for me, I, I didn't realise there was a late night version of that worldwide on ITV until after WCW folded. For me it was always the the repeat on the on a Saturday afternoon daytime, you know, I was six, seven, eight at the time. And Sting and Cactus Jack were intertwined with each other for a long time. Cactus Jack had been pissing in Sting's cornflakes for close to a year by this point. He yeah, it had been ongoing even like I think like late 1991 might have been where it started and yes. and this and this match was a long time coming and it was a sort of stipulation match as you touched on Dean not only did it play into their rivalry and the intensity and the the oddball nature of their rivalry but it, it foreshadowed because I believe it, it went three steps for Sting it was you know win here but come out of it battered and bruised a little bit uh he got attacked by Big Van Vader before the Great American Bash that softened him up further. And then that was preyed upon in the title match just a month later, and that was it. So it was, it, it was very much a, a bit of sweet win in that respect. And that's always a, a nice dark aspect of storytelling with a protagonist to, to have that happen. I think the thing that I loved about this match was that one, it, when it was announced that this is, the, this is now happening, you could sense that buzz in the crowd that they were excited this was a match they were looking forward to this is one of the matches they had come to see and it delivered exactly as you wanted it to deliver and you know everyone I think the match was only 11 and a half minutes long not particularly long but it didn't want to be long it was it, it was absolutely served its purpose and you know delivered what was being expected yeah which is why most people are absolutely baffled as to why it didn't main event the the, the likelihood of the reason why we will see after the Iron Man challenge. But obviously there, there's also, and it's a ridiculous reason to be honest, but there's also the fact that, as we'll discuss after the actual main event, Bill Watts does have a have a, have a certain hard-on for certain wrestlers and, and certain aspects of main event, which is a shame. But yeah, we'll get into that more a little bit later. Okay, well, next up, it is time for the 30-man Iron Man match. Um, Rick, Rick Rude and Ricky Steamboat. And, and now again, talking about contrasting characters, these two were absolutely uh, tailor-made for each other. You know, Rick Rude being the, the womanizing playboy and Ricky Steamboat being the, the wholesome family man. Um, this is another non-title match. I'm not entirely sure why, but it, but it is. Um, Steamboat comes out with his wife and son just to really highlight the contrast between the two of them. Um, Steamboat still has his jacket on while he attacks Rude and drops him ribs first over his knee um i always like it when they when people start wrestling with their ring jackets still on um rude is selling his ribs big early on uh, and Ven ventura who always hates steamboat and loves rude on commentary is ranting about steamboat attacking rude while his son was still in the ring um so steamboat's targeting the ribs 
um, at the four-minute mark, Steamboat locks in the Boston Crab for a submission attempt. And the, the first five minutes of the match have been all Steamboat. Uh, on commentary as well, Jim Ross reminds us about how Rude first broke Steamboat's nose and how this has feuds become personal with uh, false allegations about Steamboat. And I think I think they were, they were claiming he was having affairs with various women or something like that. Um on the eight-minute mark, Rude gets a fall out of nowhere, blocking a steamboat charge with a knee to the jaw and holding the tights, which makes it 1-0 to Rude. A minute later, Rude nails a Rude awakening neckbreaker to make it 2-0. And then another minute later, Rude comes off the top rope with a knee drop to Steamboat's throat, which is a disqualification, so it's 2-1. But he then covers Steamboat for the pin at the 10.5-minute mark, so it's 3-1 to Rude. Um, Rude tries to do his trademark hip gyration, but he suddenly stops clutching his ribs, which is just a brilliant little touch. Um, the pace has noticeably and understandably dropped. Um, Steamboat goes for a splash on Rude, but Rude gets his knees up, and now it's Steamboat's turn to sell. And Ricky Steamboat is one of the best sellers in the business. Uh, Rude puts a chin lock on Steamboat as Ventura explains that Rude is running the clock down with his two fall advantage. Uh, with 13 minutes to go, Rude hits a pile driver but only gets a two count. Steamboat then reverses a tombstone pile driver to a big pop and gets a three count to make it 3 2 with 12 minutes to go. One thing I thought at this point we really should add for the, uh, as well as the time on, that they had an on screen graphic with the clock, they should have had another on screen graphic with the, with the score because at times you're losing track. Um, we then have a superplex, which apparently is legal because both men are on the top rope, whoever makes these fucking rules up. Um, but Steamboat only gets a two count. Both men go for a dub go down from a double clothesline with ten minutes to go. But Steamboat gets an equalizing fall with nine and a half minutes to go with a simple backslide. Um, Steamboat goes crazy with pinfall attempts before Rude slows it down again with a jawbreaker. With six minutes to go, Steamboat blocks a rude awakening and hits one of his own, but only gets a two count. Both men are looking exhausted. With four minutes to go, Rude locks on a sleeper, and despite his best attempts, Steamboat can't get him off. Um, you can see the sweat absolutely dripping off both men by this point. Uh, the sleeper hold is locked on for over three minutes. Bear in mind, there's only four minutes to go when it started. Steamboat is fading. Rude, as the commentator explained, is taking a gamble by trying to knock out Steamboat and win the match. Um, we've got less than a minute to go. Steamboat starts to revive. He pushes off the corner with his legs and pins Rude while he's got the sleeper locked on. Very similar to the Bret Hart, Roddy Piper WrestleMania finish from a few months earlier. It's 4-3 to Steamboat with 30 seconds to go. Uh, Rude is desperately hitting all manner of moves to try and equalize, but Steamboat kicks all out of all of them and Steamboat wins the Ironman match as he crumples to the floor exhausted. Absolutely fantastic match, told a great story, and I think one of the great barometers of this was that it didn't feel like anywhere near 30 minutes. Oh, well, that is as I remembered it, I have to say. I, I remember, when I, when I, when I, like I said at the start, when I look back at Beach Blast 1992, as a kid, I remember being really impressed by Sting versus Cactus Jack, False Count Anywhere, and this match as well. But I have to say, watching it back in 2018, I, I didn't love it. Um, I, I, there's a lot of things about it I didn't like. I mean, it's it's there's a lot of things I did like, 
but I, I could I could certainly not necessarily pick it apart, but I, I think psychologically, I'm I'm never a massive fan of when you've got two top performers, top athletes like Rick Rude and Ricky Steamboat, two main eventers. And you could say this, I mean, this is one of the criticisms that was levelled at the recent Dolph Ziggler, Seth, Seth Rollins Ironman match as well. I'm never a massive fan of two guys who, when, generally speaking, when they wrestled each other, the match would go 15, 20 minutes before anybody scored a fall. And in this match, it's 3-1 after 10. And not only that, but why on God's uh, green earth is Rick Rude at 2-0 up? Rick, Rick Rude, who is like one of the smartest men in wrestling. Why is he going to the top rope and getting himself disqualified just so he can score another fall to put himself two ahead again? He was 2-0 well, up anyway. And then Steamboat the immediately, immediately makes a massive big babyface comeback, so it was all for nothing. The, the commentators do try and explain that I think that Rude's trying to go off the top rope to like take Steamboat out of commission for the rest of the match, but like, it doesn't. It, it doesn't, doesn't work. really work. And uh, yeah, the the the, the babyface comeback is too soon. But yeah, the reason it's three one is because two of those pinfalls have been in very close succession while Steamboat's been down and out. One's been a DQ, and then one's been the follow up to the DQ move to get the score back level again. So. Why is he doing it? Why? I don't get it. I mean, it's, you know, do you know, do you know, do you know what I mean? I mean, although Bill Watts has banned moves off the top rope, I'm guessing because he's trying to argue that it's it's a danger to hit a move off the top rope, which makes no sense whatsoever when he's removed the mats from ringside, which is even more dangerous. Yes. But we're not conditioned to see a move off the top rope. As fans, we're not conditioned to see that as a potentially damaging move to the point that it's going to take your opponent so far out of the match that you're then going to hit near fall after near fall, you know, hit fall after yeah. fall after fall. We, we we don't, you know, as wrestling fans, we're not really in that frame of mind. So for me, a guy who's 2-0 up, that that's just, I, I didn't I didn't get it. I didn't get that at all. I would agree um, with you on that, definitely. But I, I think... A lot, but a, lot, of, a lot of it, you know, a lot of it's really good. A lot of it's really yeah. good. I mean, the, the, the tombstone reversal... You didn't really see back then. That was that was quite a unique spot back then, and that that was great. I really liked the finish. You know, like you said before, where he, you know, I think that's the perfect way to book the finish of an Ironman match. The babyface gets the winning fall with 20 seconds to go, and then the heel is desperate in the last 20 seconds. I would have liked to have seen him hit a rude awakening rather than a body slam in the last five seconds, but that's just being really nitpicky. Um, but uh, yeah, a lot of things I, I really liked. A lot of things, yeah, I think could have been better, if I'm being honest. Well, I've, it seems like I've picked up on a, a lot of psychology that uh, some people don't. Or maybe I'm reading a bit too into it, but there was a lot of things that you guys were discussing that I, I actually saw the beauty of. Um, first off, I did want to say that the whole thing about the, the top rope moves with Bill Watts, yeah, we, we've gone two-footed on that. Many a time this podcast, well, basically any time we look at 92, understandably so. The last time we looked at 92 was Halloween Havoc. And as we covered, you remember, Dean, there was that little backpedal just a few weeks before Havoc 92. Bill Watts made a tweak to yes. the rules because they were shit slash confusing slash just generally abysmal. Uh, and it kind of 
told the audience and anyone else uh, what, like watching the shows in retrospect exactly what I think he was trying to get out of it in the first place. Uh, he basically whittled the top rope rule down to you can't come off to a prone opponent and bludgeon their head. Case in point, the knee drop that Rude lands on this. In, in what's his mind, that is like a Memphis pole driver. And I can sort of understand why, but yeah, it takes a lot of conditioning of a, of a diehard audience to get there, and they definitely weren't there yeah. yet. Um, I liked what they were doing with that aspect of it. I'll say one thing when you said the whole him hitting that just to get an, uh, one full back and be where he was. Yeah, I'll give you an example. Um, 2000, you had the Ironman match between Rock and Triple H. And if I remember correctly, Triple H does the whole give away a pawn to take the queen move a lot better. I think he hits Rock with a chair, gets DQ'd. But he actually takes two or three falls and mounts a huge lead from it. That is what you need to be doing with something like this. And that's yes. what this should have yep. been. If he'd have got yep. another fall off of it, fair play. Uh, but... Yeah, I know in a lot of instances they, they go a lot longer without one fall. I wasn't put off by that, Percy, because for me, you had Steamboat going 100 miles per hour. He was all over Rick Rude. And Lambert, you are a Liverpool fan with Jurgen Klopp as their manager. You'll know this more than anyone else. Uh, you can dominate a, a team on the football pitch, but sometimes you just get caught against a run of play. And it's that team who've been, you know, wearing a tin hat, uh, who've been dealing with all the pressure, who actually take the lead. And that is what it was portrayed as. It was against the run of play. He caught him. He got him. And because that shook Steamboat so much and it gave Rude such a boost because uh, he weren't expecting to suddenly go one fall up when he was being destroyed, uh, he was able to hit his finisher within a minute and go two up. Yeah, you then have the whole thing where he, he should be building a lead. If he's going to give a four away, the idea is for it to be a little better. So he comes across as a bit of a doofus for that, especially when he immediately switches strategy to the uh, to, to kill time. But I like the next mistake he made. You could call this heel arrogance. He, he's running down the clock. He's just happy to keep his, his two full lead. But he starts to... Yeah, you know, he gets a taste of more. Like, he, as Dean said, he hits the pole driver and he comes close to getting another fall. So he starts going for more big moves and that's where the tombstone comes in. And just like with uh, with Steamboat going at him and getting caught for 1-0, this is where Steamboat's comeback starts. And I like that. So the psychology for me, other than that whole knee drop should have yielded more, otherwise it is complete stupidity. Everything else for me checked out and I loved it. Especially that last minute. Oh my God. The desperation was brilliant. And yeah, I know you said, yeah, you want to see him hit the rude awakening. But yeah, he's got 40 seconds. He's desperate. He knows Steamboat's tired. He's just hoping something will work. He doesn't want to just try for something that, you know, like the Tombstone might get cannoned. He's running over him with shoulder blocks. He's just putting him on the floor quickly. He's covering him. He's hitting a quick suplex. He's covering him. He's desperate. He's out of his mind and he lost. Yeah, he's not thinking straight. Other than that knee drop spot, not actually achieving the whole idea of it, which is you give one away, you get two or three. You know, you give you give a pawn, you take the queen, as they say. Um, 
other than that, the psychologist was magnificent and it holds up for me. But yeah, I, I think you've got every right to, to say that that point could have been done a little better. Especially saying, you know, when, when Triple H did do it, when, when he goes outside the ring and, and gets a steel chair and bludgeons his opponent, no, there's no confusion there. Everyone knows, sitting at home, live in the audience, he just got a fucking weapon and did him in. He's a bad dude. Oh, look, he's now just raining in the falls and it was worth it that hits you psychologically so that didn't work and you know i think every, every, everywhere i've seen i've seen guys give this a four and a half star rating using the old Meltzer star system and i think four and a half is probably spot on considering that one oversight everything else i loved about the match i think you've given, given a very good um convincing argument let, let's say yeah i'm i'm more i'm more convinced now you are spot on with a knee drop. It's you know it, it it should have been a more clear heel move, and obviously they yeah, were. Definitely. Watts was always definitely. struggling with his old-fashioned ways of saying, "Oh, boo this action." So he really struggled with that, and he Rude should have just called an audible and grabbed the fucking ring bell and clobbered Steamboat or something. Well, maybe that was mandated against yeah. as well in yeah. WWE. And then covered um, him, and then covered him twice and gone four one. You know, if he'd gone four one up, then it's a different matter. And it's they bit... could have worked that yeah. into the comeback yeah. easily. A, a flash roll up. Yeah. Steamboat with five left. Even bigger comeback, even more understandable. Rude has blown it, but he doesn't look completely stupid. There's a big difference. Yeah, yes. I think I think you, you you know from what you're both saying, you've it's, they didn't go far enough one way or the other. It was either do the big knee and 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 as you said, Liam, absolutely that they they hadn't conditioned the crowd enough to make it seem that dangerous yet. But then, if he's going to do that, get more than one fall to to recompense yourself. It was yeah, it wasn't far enough one way or the other. But overall, I think great match. But we now we now have a change of pace. It's now time for round two of the bikini contest. It hey! is swimsuits. It's swimsuit time. Uh, Ventura is happy because the clothing is getting skimpier, which doesn't sound creepy at all. Um, out comes Johnny B. Bad, who comes across as a very awkward host, as we've already mentioned. Uh, Medusa walks up and down the ramp in her swimsuit as Johnny B. Bad makes various comments. Uh, Missy Hart comes out in a blue bikini, which confused me because this is meant to be the swimsuit round, the bikini round is in the next round. But anyway, um, so yeah, she's wearing a blue bikini and Johnny B. Bad comments on, look at those two big, beautiful blue eyes. Uh, yeah, so um, as we said earlier, as a, as a hormone-filled teenager, I loved this at the time. Looking at it with 2018 eyes, it's uh, it's something from a bygone age, let's say. You can't imagine, uh, you know, this happening with uh, Oscar and Natty Neidhart or someone, could you? No, no. Although I, I did learn something I didn't know about Missy High. I never actually realised... Again, sort of when I was doing a bit of research ahead of this evening, I didn't actually realise that Missy Hyatt had a short-lived, short-lived run in the WWF in 1987. Yes, yes. I didn't know that. Mrs. <laughs> I, I honestly had never ever seen an episode of Missy's Manor until this morning when I, I had a look on YouTube to see if it was bad as people were saying. And it wasn't, actually. I thought, well, because Randy Savage, actually, the one I watched was the one with Randy Savage, and, and Randy Savage can, can make even the most wooden interviewer look great. You mean but, like uh, a Slim Jim competition, for instance? <laughs> you remember that one, Dean? We did, oh, we yeah, did, that, we did Havoc '96. Yes. That Havoc was incredible. Oh my God! So, so it did, yeah, it, you know, it did, it did remind me of that at least. 
That's did right. Mrs. It did, it did te- teach me a little bit of wrestling knowledge that I didn't already know. Did Mrs. Manor actually ever make the air, or was it just recorded and stayed in the can or such? They're, they're all there's, there's about there's about three or four episodes on YouTube, so I'm I'm assuming it was um, it was broadcast for a while on Superstars of Wrestling, I think. Yeah, I think it was Tom oh. McGee. They did their absolute utmost to to keep it. When they decide they didn't like it, they did what they can. But well, yeah, we're we're now in the 21st century, and a lot of these things get aired. They they find the light of day, and you know. Given, given that we're sad enough to do a podcast about a 25-year-old WCW pay-per-view, that's for us, it's for the better that we get to dig up these gems. And I, I for one, am actually going to watch it whenever I get a chance. I would turn out tomorrow now. Curious. I'm, yeah. I'm just, I'm just right. looking up. Um... Whatever happens, it's got to be better than her porn. Mrs. Manor segments would... <laughs> Mrs. Manor segments were taped on March the 21st and 22nd and April the 23rd, 1987. Um, yeah, she had Randy Savage, Hong Kong Man and Harley Race. The show was a disaster, according to uh, Wikipedia. McMahon asked Hyatt to become a federette, which were the ring girls showing at pay-per-views. She thought the role was beneath her and went back to the UWF. This, this interview segment was to replace... Piper's pit. Yeah. Because Roddy Piper had had his retirement match at WrestleMania 3 and gone off to film They Live and various other things, whatever else he did. Um, So, yeah, replacing Roddy Piper with Missy Hyatt. It was no flower shop, was it? No. Remember the flower shop? The flower shop. I do remember the flower shop. Who hosted the flower? Oh, no. Who, Who hosted the flower shop? Ah, Adrian, Adrian Adonis. Adonis. Adrian Adonis, that was it. It was like a direct replay. It was a storyline replacement where they they put Piper out and then uh, they they took over and they did it and then Piper took a baseball bat. Yes. Uh, right. So let's move on to match number six. It's a six-man tag with special guest referee Ole Anderson. It is the remnants of the Dangerous Alliance, Arn Anderson, Bobby Eaton and Steve Austin against Dustin Rhodes, Barry Windham and Nikita Koloff. Uh, the first thing I noticed was that Bobby Eaton had cut off his mullet, which was a sad day for wrestling. Um, the Dangerous Alliance have somewhat lost their aura since being defeated in war games at Wrestle War a few uh, months previously. And Nikita Koloff is uh, now being billed from Lithuania to try and distance himself from the old Russian heel gimmick. Uh, Ole Anson's the referee. They misspell his name on the screen graphic. Brilliant. Um, this is a very strange match to put on the pay-per-view to me. It feels it's a bit of a filler. It feels more like, a, again, a main event feature match on WCW Worldwide. Koloff knocks Arn Anson over the top rope and Paulie is doing his nut wanting a DQ, but Jim Ross says it was the Anson's momentum that took him over rather than Koloff throwing him over. Um, and it's worth pointing out that the throwing your opponent over the top rope being a DQ rule wasn't new to Bill Watts. That had been around WCW and the NWA for years before that. Um, Koloff single-handedly dispatches all three members of the Dangerous Alliance to the floor. Paulie gathers them together to talk about going to plan two. Um, Wyndham then starts to take over on Anson at the 10 minute mark of the match uh, Rhodes tags in gets thrown into Bobby Eaton two men clash heads um, during this match they also start shilling the premium rate WCW hotline where you can vote for Missy or Medusa and Medusa is allegedly 51 to 49% ahead it is closer than Brexit um, the alliance has singled out Dustin Rhodes he takes one of his clothes trademark somersault bumps 
off an, uh, an Austin flying clothesline. Arn Anderson attacks Rhodes on the outside, and he's admonished by Ole Anderson, who, being a former world tag team champion, is wise to all of these tricks. Austin hits a stun gun on Rhodes, but Rhodes manages to tag Wyndham in, and soon enough, all six men are in the ring. Wyndham hits a superplex, but Anderson comes off the top rope to break up the fall, and Ole Anderson disqualifies him for the top rope move as the brawl continues. Um, awful ending. Muted crowd. Another match that was just there, Greg. Yeah, what, what's the point? On a, on a, what is the point in that finish? I mean, is, is this actually... Because this is going to be followed, as we're going to talk about in a minute, by segment three of the bikini contest and then a main event with another deeply unsatisfying finish. This is actually one of the worst finishes to a pay-per-view. This, this amazing show that I remember from my youth is turning so sour with <laughs> with with a, with a with a ridiculous disqualification finish after and, and I'm no massive fan of Barry Windham I have to say I've, I've always found him I've always felt he was overrated in terms of the way he was kind of How portrayed at the time How dare you be smoking lone wolf He's boring He's boring <laughs> He hits a good right he's got a good right hand and the superplex is great I love the way he floats over on top of the superplex very very graceful but Never really did anything for me. The highlight of this match is Dustin Rhodes' jacket. I was always a big fan of that. I liked his yellow and red and black yeah. the jacket. That, that was the best thing in this match. Ole Anderson trying to be a referee. That Whose idea was that? Uh, and the, the finish is just... I mean, okay, if it's going to lead somewhere, then fine. But on the next pay-per-view, they're all in a tag team tournament. It doesn't actually... You know, there's no. It, it doesn't actually build to anything. Having, the, you know, the Dangerous Alliance get disqualified, it's almost like Bill Rock, Bill Watts is stubbornly trying to enforce his ridiculous top rope rule. You know, like he did in the last match, and you know, as we we mentioned, you know, nearly nearly ruined a fantastic match between Rude and Steamboat, and then ruins what was a pretty solid six man tag with just the most ridiculous thing. That's my that's my view anyway. No, yeah, th this match pretty much serves three purposes alone. One is to get a bunch of well-known WCW names on the show somehow, some way. The second is to actually hopefully make some headway in educating the audience on these confusing fucking top rope rules, whether pre-existing or what's uh, imposed. And the third is to establish that sourpuss Ole Anderson as a babyface, no-nonsense official. As a result, I could not give a monkey's toss about this match. Well, this is the thing, Liam. We've got to, we've got to remember that basically, in storyline, Ole Anderson and Arn Anderson are brothers. They're former world tag team champions. And what they're basically trying to get across for reasons which are known only, I think, to the WCW booking committee, is that Ole Anderson is prepared to disqualify his own brother for breaching these new rules. So it should lead to a match, shouldn't it? I mean, I know Ole's kind of retired at this point, but it should lead to something. It should lead to it's something. Arn Anderson, one of the greatest talkers in the history of wrestling, come out and, and, cut, and a, cut a promo on his brother for making that decision, and it leads somewhere. At least then there's a point in it. It, and it, it doesn't, Ole, it doesn't go anywhere. And Ole can hold his own. 
He was no slouch with promos, admitted Yola. He could have held his own with a back and forth. But um, at least when they first had us, I don't know if you guys remember in the 80s when Ole, I, don't, I think he just gave up on the on the full-time schedule and that was the beginning of the end of him as a, a, as a full-time wrestler. He was kicked out of the horseman, wasn't he? At least that had somewhat of a, of a storyline continuance and a reason to care week in, week out on TV for a little bit. Uh, yeah, this is a complete and utter... Wash. This is terrible. It's a shame because there's so many good. You know, whatever you you know you you might not be a huge fan of Bo Windham, but guys like him and and Arn Anderson, Dustin Rose, Steve Austin. There's all of these guys should be doing so much better on a pay per view show. Yeah, I mean I'm a huge fan of the Dangerous Alliance. I thought it was a great a great and very short lived faction, and I was always a big admirer of Bobby Eaton and and Steve Austin in that particular phase, and Anderson Anderson too. And you're absolutely right. It's a it's a criminal waste. Yeah, but Liam, why did the uh, angle of Ole Anson disqualifying his brother not lead anywhere? Um, can I take because WCW for 50 points, please, Dean? 50 points to Liam. Congratulations. Yes! So, next up, Eric Bischoff in his awful orange Hawaiian shirt is interviewing Ricky Steamboat. Um, Bischoff won't stop talking. You're not the one being interviewed, mate. You're meant to ask the questions and let Steamboat talk. Foreshadowing. Paulie da- yes. Um, Paulie Dangerously comes out and tells Steamboat he'll never get another shot at Rick Rude's US title. The logic of that is a bit baffling because he's just beaten the US champion in a non-title match. Um, then Cactus Jack appears out of nowhere, drags Steamboat off the ramp and the officials try and break them up and we have got uh, another arm to this angle where Cactus Jack is basically uh, the hired gun uh, for the Dangerous Alliance. And that, Dean, is why Sting Cactus caught a main event, it seems. for So so that Cactus Jack could still be mobile for an angle that could have easily have been done on TV. Isn't that brilliant? And where does this angle go? Where Where is the... Where is the Ricky Steamboat versus Cactus Jack big show revenge payoff match? Well, they have another pay-per-view just a month later. I'm guessing it's not on there. That neither of them are on the show. Uh, Steamboat teams with... Yeah, he. they're in the... Oh, sorry, Steamboat's on the show. He's in, he's a in the tournament. He's in the tag yeah. team tournament. Cactus Jack isn't, isn't, hasn't got a match no. on the show. It, there's yeah. there's no Ricky Steamboat versus Cactus Jack match coming out of this angle, or even Cactus Jack interfering in the match for Steamboat. No, it doesn't. It doesn't go anywhere. The next time Cactus Jack's on pay per view is Clash of the Champions in September, and he's challenging Ron Simmons for the title. Now, Greg, for fifty points. <laughs> why Why was Cactus Jack v Ricky Steamboat not on any pay-per-view? All right, I'm going to get I'm going to get this. I think I think I understand where we're going. Because Yep. WCW. Right. There we go. The scary thing of this is that um 
we've had, you know, in, in 19 short episodes, we, we come up to our one year anniversary of starting the show. We've covered so many ridiculous harebrained decisions and, and, and just general ridiculousness from this company. And I have to make it clear, and, and those diehard WCW fans who are listening will probably be aware of this. If we went, and we probably will at some point, if we strayed away from the general format of pay-per-views, I think that will come very soon. If you between the lines, there there is just so much more. We have we we have got the rest of our lives potentially to look back at just a decade's worth of stupidity. You think of the the plane expenses, the cancelled house shows. The there was so much unfathomable stupidity from this company and all we're doing at the moment is looking at major pay-per-view booking decisions and some of these beggar belief and we we're only scratching the surface it's incredible i know it is um there there is there is a, a an iceberg of ineptitude and we're only merely seeking the surface at the moment you know but um it is it is now time ladies and gentlemen boys and girls, for the final round of the bikini contest, which uh, Jesse Ventura has now interjected himself in. It is the teeny weeny bikini round. So um, Ventura directly asks Johnny B. Bad, do you even like girls? Which Bad doesn't answer. Um, Medusa comes out in a tiny bikini and a pair of chaps uh, for some reason. Um which, again, must be traditional beachwear in Alabama. Missy Hyatt then pokes her head out of her changing tent, um, and she alleges that someone has stolen her bikini. She then um, nicks Jesse Ventura's banners from off his head and around his neck. Um, Johnny Bad then says he'll take a look and basically puts his head inside the tent and peeks at a woman getting changed. Missy comes out wearing a bikini that has allegedly been fashioned from Jesse's bandanas. Uh, Bad then declares that Missy Hyatt is the first lady of WCW, and then he gets smacked about my, by Medusa. This does make me wonder what's happened to all the people who've spent money voting on the premium rate hotline if Bad has just declared that she's the winner. Um, <laughs> Bad then re-emerges from the tent with what's supposed to be Medusa's bikini top uh, before an excited Ventura goes into the tent. So... In this segment, back in 1992, he says with 2018 our eyes and consciousness, we've basically had an apparent sexual assault on a woman who's had her clothes forcibly removed from her, uh, homophobic um, insults, uh, two instances of voyeurism, and people spending their money to vote on a contest that was decided by the host. Although Jim Ross does then mention that you can still vote on the hotline and they'll announce the results tomorrow. It was a different time, shall we say. And worst of all, Missy Hyatt's uh, final outfit was actually a lot less revealing than the one in round two. I'm joking, yes. I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. Um, no, you're right, you're right, Dean. I mean, uh, <laughs> at, um, at best, this is Benny Hill. <laughs> seaside postcard humor and at worst it's it's sexual harassment on a grand scale and <laughs> yeah. you know i mean it's oh god i mean what what, what why why was the bikini in an envelope as well what why were they storing the itsy witsy teeny weeny bikini in an envelope 
because it was that small. It was so small. It was to tell you it's so small. You had to put it in an envelope. Yeah, it was. It would fit in an envelope. That is how tiny this bikini was supposedly was. Hey, yeah. I mean, Ventura and Bad. They they don't exactly cover themselves with with glory here, do they? I'd be interested. I've I've not actually listened to any um, shoot interviews where. I think, you know, Medusa in particular gives her views about what it was like to be asked to, to do that, whether she, you know, went along with it willingly. Um, I mean, certainly she she kind of played the role of the bad, you know, she was being a heel, you know, she was kind of mm. covering up a little bit because that's what the heel would do and being quite aloof as she walked up and down, whereas Missy was, you know, bubbly and quite happy to do what you know whatever that was the role of the baby face but i'd be, I'd be quite interested to know what their real life opinions were of, of doing it in night of, of being you know being part of that bikini contest in 1992 you know particularly medusas well bear in mind that in 1993 missy hart sued wcw for sexual harassment so that might give you part of an answer there but i i would genuinely love to know at the time and there's no way of finding out obviously but how many people were convinced to shell out on this pay-per-view, not by Sting, Cactus Jack, Falls Count Anywhere, not by Rick Rude and Ricky Steamboat Iron Man match, but by the Missy Hyatt Medusa bikini contest. And, and if they did, <laughs> if they did, they're completely ripped off because you don't get the result until you tune into TV next week. Isn't that right? You, you, there's no, they don't actually tell you who wins. Although John, you're yeah, quite right, Johnny be bad. Voting. Yeah, Johnny be bad decides who the winner is. Just goes into business for himself, like you mentioned before. <laughs> But you don't actually get the payoff. And to think, fellas, somewhere on the ITV worldwide airing of, I'm assuming they they covered uh, this particular segment and the aftermath, someone at ITV, while overseeing the airing of this, took one look at it and thought, oh, there's a money-spinning idea. And then we got 20 years of <laughs> of phone calling fraud that led to several controversies, if you remember correctly. That's the way I'm telling history now. ITV directly got the scam idea from this pay-per-view. I thought you so, were trying to insinuate that um, WCW Beach Blast spawned Babe Station then. That was going to be exactly what I was going to say, yes. <laughs> did, they, did they inspire Babe Station? Phone fraud and babe station. <laughs> this, this, you're saying this pay per view lost luster in your eyes a second view. Well, it turns out actually it was seminal, it was groundbreaking. It led to two of the greatest concepts in television history babe station and conning people out of money with fake quizzes and polls. It's, oh, it's terrible. I can't and believe I say, it. I, I, I have to say that, um. It really was a forerunner for a lot of the stuff that Jerry Lawler was doing as well in in, yeah. the, in the Attitude Era, wasn't it? Ventura's adolescence on 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 that show it was was I don't know, not what I remembered from for me the greatest heel commentator of all time. Yes, but, a bit um, disappointing. I I just love the fact that me and Greg have the exact same thought about Babe Station. That's brilliant. Right, it is time for our um our main event. It is um the WWE World Tag Team Championship of the Steiner Brothers, who are the defending champions against Steve Williams and Terry Bam Bam Gordy. 
Uh, the on-screen graphics guy is having a bad day because he's now misspelled Nagoya, where because uh, the the challenges of builders being coming from Nagoya, Japan these days. Uh, Jim Ross says that the Steiners have quote beaten every team like a stepchild. Nice. Did, did I mention it was a different time in 1992? <laughs> um, we start with Scott and Terry Gordy. Within a couple of minutes, the feeling out process of the grappling is replaced by a bad-tempered brawl. Uh, their respective partners come to the ring to calm things down. Five minutes in, we've got Scott and Steve Williams. The pace is still deliberate. Um, you can tell this is going to be a, a long match, but then it also it does have the feel of a, a big title match where the, both the champions and the challengers are, are very cagey and mutually respectful. Rick comes in within a couple of minutes. He's thrown Williams over in a belly-spelly suplex, and the Stein line from Rick wakes the crowd up momentarily. Gordy hits Rick with a beautiful belly-to-back suplex. Uh, he later locks on a single-leg Boston Crab on Rick. Rick throws another big suplex on Gordy, and he tags in Scott. Um, they're doing what what is a, a Japanese-style tag team match, but we're in Alabama, and so I'm not sure if it's working. Um, we've now got Scott and Williams again. Williams blocks Scott's trademark spinning belly-to-belly -belly suplex by basically sprawling into the ropes. Uh, we're 15 minutes into this match now, halfway through the time limit. They double-team Scott and then Williams kicks Scott straight in the knee as he exits the ring. Uh, this gives Gordy a target to aim for with a leg lock. With 10 minutes to go, Williams seems to have had the single-leg Boston Crab on Scott for an eternity. Um, there's just no urgency to the match. And they're, they're telling, I know it's easy to say with the benefit of hindsight, but they're really telegraphing a time limit draw. Um, now Williams has got a full Boston Crab on Scott. The crowd are virtually silent by now. Finally, Scott gets to his corner. Rick comes in for the hot tag to no reaction. Rick hits a middle-rope bulldog on Williams and then knocks Gordy to the floor. Williams runs through Scott with a shoulder tackle. Gordy lands in a very odd-looking sort of tombstone pile driver positioned power slam off the middle rope. Uh, but Rick kicks out. Scott's on the floor looking in trouble. They hit a double shoulder tackle to Rick for a two count as we reach the 25-minute mark. Uh, Rick fights back against Williams, but he's struggling to stand. Williams and Gordy have looked the better team throughout the whole match, which is part of what's killed this crowd, I think. With three minutes to go, Williams has got a chin lock on, which tells you everything you need to know about this match. Uh, he executes a gut wrench powerbomb for a two count and goes to a front face lock with two minutes to go. Front face lock, give me strength. Um, compare this to the last two minutes of Rude V Steamboat, by the way. Um, Williams gets Rick up for the Oklahoma Stampede, but Rick escapes and nails Williams with a Stein line. Gordy's tagged in. Rick nails him with a Stein line with one minute to go. He makes the tag to Scott, who cleans house on the challengers. Uh, with 15 seconds to go, Scott hits a butterfly suplex bomb but doesn't cover him and instead whips Gordy into the ropes, lands a Frankensteiner as the time limit expires. Um, I just found the idea of having a time limit draw in your main event on a pay-per-view to be absolutely bizarre. And it just seemed to me that Williams and Gordy didn't seem to want to sell a thing for the Steiners. Um, I don't know if there's some sort of political issues going on behind the curtain. But I'd have said, like you touched on earlier, Liam, Rudin Steamboat with its action and babyface finish would have been much better close to the show. Maybe, um, maybe they saw what the Steiners did to their last pay-per-view opponents, given that their last pay-per-view was uh, WrestleWar 92. Oh, maybe. Do you remember but... Fujinami and Izuka? Oh, of course I thought they were in the War Games. That was the year before. Yes, yes, they battered Izuka, didn't they? 
but no, you are right, it's especially on the card where they've actually got a 30-minute Iron Man challenge. And yes, I'll always refer to it as the Iron Man challenge because I like little things that WCW did from time to time, such as that. You know, in WCW, it was the Iron Man challenge. Uh, a three-way match in WCW was a triangle match. They did have little things I liked, so and that was one of them. But yeah, they, they, they have the balls to, to run that match and then a 30-minute stalemate in the main event. And you think about it, he, he, he did a similar thing in the tag title match at uh, Halloween Havoc a few months later. And has there ever been a, a promoter that has overseen so many bad matches involving good workers in such a short period of time as Bill Watts? It, it beggars belief. Oh, my God. I, I really struggled with this match. It was just so dull and so pointless and so listless. You, you can't put all the blame on Bill Watts, though. I mean, you've got four guys in there who were supposedly, you know, four main eventers at the time. And, and you know, in the case of, of Gordy and Williams, a lot of people say among the, the all-time greats, and well, certainly the Steiners, as well as a tag team, you would say, amongst amongst the all-time the all-time greats as well. And it just appears in that, that no one's got any idea how to structure a match. I mean, it's, it is half an hour, virtually exclusively, of Williams and Gordy trapping a Steiner in the corner and applying holds yeah. with, with a few explosive bits here and there. But, you know, it's not certainly not what the Steiners built their reputation on, which was no, beating, made, the, beating the crap them. out of people in explosive yeah. fashion. It made them look really bad. What what I was going to say is, you know, both of you guys are, are, are journalists, and you you know, you you sometimes hear things. And I, I mean, I don't know what. As far as you're aware, was there any kind of like backstage tension between them? I mean, Gordian Williams and Gordy worked for All Japan. Steins worked for New Japan. Was there was it something to do with that? I mean, did did they not want to cooperate? I, I don't know. I'm not entirely sure, Percy, but I'll say that you guys have been behind the proverbial curtain a lot more than I have when it comes to pro wrestling. But if, if you think about it this way, if you're given an outline as talent, you're given an outline of, of the bullet points of what has to be done and the rest is up to you. And they're told you, you're in the main event slot. You're, you're going to work to a 30 minute draw. You've just you have just had a, a a proper thirty minute match elsewhere on the card, and also compounding matters. And this was another gripe of mine. You've got two hills here, relatively new. They've got zero presence in an issue that you see so much in this day and age when uh, talent is called up from NXT to the WWE main roster, in that they were presented by comment commentary by will. You know, whichever production mandates come out here, they're presented as these are Williams and Gordy. Boo them. They are really talented and they are really like they are real bad guys. And no one stateside has a reason to care. So they have zero presence as a result. And as I said, you see it a lot where people get called up from NXT and the whole the whole presentation of it on Raw or SmackDown is, well, you know them from NXT. Well, actually, no, we fucking don't. And that was a big problem here because it sucked the life out of the heat that they were supposed to be getting on the Steiners. Not just in the bad manner that, you know, I agree, it, it was definitely not their most sterling job. But 
so, sometimes I, I can sympathise with even good workers where if they're given a, 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 a just a really ridiculous mission statement, how, how the hell do you turn it into? You know, how how do you make chicken salad out of chicken shit? Well, they didn't even make the effort. I don't think. No, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it was, wasn't uh, good. You won't have any arguments. It, really, it really wasn't good. And again, again, where did it lead? It, it led to the heels winning the belts mm. a few weeks later. And then the Steiners never won them back. They ended up leaving for WWF. They were shit-canned by what's we discussed out on the Havoc 92. They, they were. Williams and Gordy lost them to Rhodes and Wyndham, I think. Yeah. Yep. And um, again, it's just, just the whole thing is just weird. What a strange ending to a pay-per-view to have, like, the baby faces leave up the ramp. And then you can see, as the commentators are kind of closing the show, you can just see the heels, Williams and Gordy in the distance, stood in the ring still, doing nothing. What, what, it was just a... I, I don't get it at all. At the time, I was reading a lot of um, the Apta magazines. And they, I think this is probably where my perception of this show has come from, because they were very pro-WCW. And... They, they really put this show and they put Williams and Gordy and the Steiners over like gods. And I just think my perception's been clouded by all that propaganda, I think, back then. Well, they were always pro-WCW because they were, Bill, Bill Apter was given ringside access for photography at their shows. That's right. Seeing, yes. Whereas WWF wouldn't. They wouldn't, absolutely. And they wouldn't talk to them either. So, yeah, I, I was just just in general, I was just really really quite disappointed by the whole event i mean i i would say i found it to be great in places i thought you know the sting cactus match and the rude steamboat match were, were fantastic awkward in others awkward with it you know with the, the bikini contest shenanigans looking at it with with 2018 eyes with the the main event ending the way it did and there was just way too much filler and given given that two matches went an hour collectively that shouldn't have been the case um, and then also, yeah, what we, as we've discussed with the rule changes hurting things, it, it was more cold than hot, would you say? Yeah, yeah, I would. I would. I, what, I, what I would say, though, is I was really impressed with the fact that we had closing credits because you never see that in WWF. You always got that in WCW. And I always loved oh, it. It's yeah. amazing. It's amazing. Although you can understand why Bill Watts started cutting costs if he's got that many people on the payroll. It was ridiculous. They even had a carpenter. <laughs> Did you see that? They have, they, have a car, they have a carpenter. Missy Hyatt's dress supplied by, got a mention. It was unbelievable. Yeah. But I always used to like it because you, when you look back over it now, you'd see, you know, Alan Rogalski, Virgil Runnels, and you'd realise who these people are because you didn't know at the time who they were. You know, you found out that actually these guys were, were having a, a bit of a double life as such. I like the uncensored credits when they did uncensored pay-per-views because to be edgy they'd use the uh the you know the cut out newspaper font and they would only use their first names because you know it's really edgy and uncensored apparently but um you're going back to beach blast so did, i don't know if you guys noticed but this was so, so you had wrestle war in may we've already covered i'm sure we'll cover the great american bash 92 that happens in July, and we do touch upon a, a very important part of that in the Big Fan Vader tribute episode that we had. Uh, and, and we've got this that happens in June, so that's for the first time, you know, ahead of its time, you've got 
a promotion running free pay-per-view events in as many months and just to show that not only was the market not quite ready for it because obviously it was you know there was a market for it at some point when wrestling was a, was a little stronger we got there in like 97 98 uh but between that and the fact that wcw were just really doing shitty business and struggling to bring people into their overall product uh the building was half full according to dave Meltzer. uh it only drew 3200 people and it set <laughs> as he put it, it set another record for the worst ever buy rate it did a uh a 0.4 and 80,000 buys yeah so it did really badly no, nothing yeah, it was sold mostly on the cactus jack sting match it didn't draw we we see that a lot in sting's career he's beloved he really was the icon of wcw but he was never going to draw hulk hogan numbers yeah. and sometimes between between him not being a, a super duper megastar and wcw being fucking awful he ended up drawing some buy rates like this unfortunately but it's also worth bearing in mind that not only did they have monthly pay-per-views, but I think it was four days before this pay-per-view, they taped Clash of the Champions 19, which was the first round of the, the NWA World Tag Team Tournament, which, although it was recorded before Beach Blast, it was aired after Beach Blast. Um, and that was where you had... Um, you had people, the first time really you'd seen people in North America, such as uh, Joe and Dean Malenko were one team, and Chris Benoit and Biff Wellington, who eerily died on the same day. Uh, they were another team, and you had a couple of New Japan teams as well. So that was on Sil the Silver Kings, which was Silver King and El Texano. That did um, a uh, record low rating as well. Yeah. Um, but... Um, that was oh and there's curiously because I was looking up on that there's curiously there's a team builders the headhunters from I think the Dominican Republic or Puerto Rico which was just two of their their regular TV jobbers Bob Cook being one of them in masks and bodysuits and it just got me thinking this is something I'd never realized before but there was in 1992 just starting out becoming getting a name for themselves was a pair of big identical twins who did headhunters called the headhunters mm. from i thought the dominican republic so it makes me wonder if they tried to get them build them and then something fell through and they just put a pair of jobbers in masks because no one would know who the headhunters were at the time anyway but i suppose that's a, another question for another day we, we should ask twitter i have to ask though i'm not quite sure if that is more wcw or more bill watts <laughs> I'm not, I'm not sure what that is. More classic. <laughs> is it? Is it? Is it classic WCW? Is it classic Bill Watts or a bit of both? I suppose we shall have to take to social media and see if someone can answer our question. Okay, Greg. Before we let you go, we ask all of our guests to uh, select a theme tune from WCW's Hallowed Vaults. Please, Mister Mister Hap, press play. Mister Lambert, tell us why you have selected this tune.
I've selected this tune because I'm a big fan of the genre of music that this gentleman represented so finely in WCW. And also because it is, it is the closest thing that WCW have to the Honky Tonk Man's team. It is, it is their Honky Tonk Man. That, that is what it is. I never, ever thought of it like that, but you are so right. So, so it's a strong choice, but yes, you are absolutely spot on. Yeah, I, I love this film. Uh, it ticks all the boxes you need. It's, it's catchy, it's character specific, and it's camp as all mother of fuck. The perfect wrestling film. <laughs> Instantly recognisable. Yes. You need that as well. Yes. That's a... That is a great choice. I, Greg, I, I'm not wearing a hat, but if I was, I would be tipping it to you right now. And would you be wearing white flares and a waistcoat? He is already. Why, why the hell not? Let's, let's, go, let's go all in. Anyway, that is, that is all we have got time for. Greg Lambert, it has been an absolute pleasure and a privilege to have you on our show. Thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. I know how busy you are with the run-up to Wrestling MediaCon. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been great fun and uh, brought brought back a lot of very interesting, interesting memories of a, a long forgotten era in the recess of my mind. <laughs> <laughs> and just one more time, Greg, if people want to get more information on what's going on and how to get tickets for Wrestling Media Con, where can they go to? They can go to WrestlingMediaCon.com and also RingsideWorld.co.uk. And make sure you check out WrestleTalk.com as well. Great stuff. Thank you very much. So thank you ever so much, for, folks, for downloading this episode. If you've enjoyed it, please follow us on Twitter at BecauseWCW or we're on Facebook.com forward slash BecauseWCW. So on behalf of my co-host Liam Happ, this is the Twisted Genius Dean saying I'll see you ringside.